The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Welcome to Westway. In case you did not see the mass exodus of children, uh, parents, if you would like to dismiss your uh, kids to Noah's Park and Wee Ones, uh, you're welcome to do that. Um, right now. And of course, you don't have to do that. Your kids are welcome here um, in our space today. Uh, If we haven't met, I'm John, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad that you are here uh, today. Um, If this is your first time, we would love to just connect with you, and we make that really simple. You can just text the word um, welcome. You can text the word pray, or you can text the word serve to the number that's going to be on the screen here. Um, And someone will reach out to you and connect with you um, once. Just to say hi, just to acknowledge that we received your, your, um, your text from us. You can also fill out a card at the Welcome Center, and we have a gift for you uh, there as well. Um, I want to remind you, next week is Holy Week, and we have a whole slew of things taking place most nights. Now, last week I said we're not doing anything on Wednesday. Children and Student Ministry is still meeting um, next Wednesday night. But as far as something that kind of we're doing for Holy Week, um, we're taking Wednesday off because there's nothing mentioned in Scripture on Wednesday of Holy Week. I would love for you to go ahead and open your Bible to Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. And while you're doing that, um, a few years ago, I think this was in, I think this was 2019, I was running on the dirt road behind West Lawn Cemetery um, one early one morning. And if you've ever been on that little dirt road, you know, there's kind of a, kind of a dip down there. And as I, as I went down the dip and I hit the flat ground, I kind of brought my eyes up and looked across, like looked up the road. I saw, I saw this thing run across the road and like, I'm tr- like, I see this and it looked like a really big cat, right? So my brain is trying to do all, like trying to categorize what could that have possibly been because um, I know what a deer looks like. I know it wasn't a deer. Um, I know what a coyote looks like. I know it wasn't a coyote. And then, um, like, the last thing I saw was this huge tail that it had. So it was a mountain lion. Of course, it was a mountain lion. And because, like, I'm still processing all of this, like, I'm still, like, running, like, towards it, right? Because my brain is not quite in fight or flight mode. I think it's in, like, well, that was a surprise. Um, so I ran by it and I kind of, or like it had run across the road. And as I ran by the space, I was kind of looking over my shoulder and then a few days, I I shared that with a few people. And a few days later, I got a phone call from, uh, from the law enforcement officer at the monument. He's the person who's in charge of mountain lion sightings in the area. So he, he was asking me all of these, all of these questions, um, because, not everyone that sees a mountain lion sees a mountain lion. Sometimes you see something else. So he was kind of asking me lots of questions. And it uh, turns out it was a mountain lion because the way I, specifically the tail, the way I described the tail. Um, and then he started saying, so then I said, well, what I did was I ran by it and I looked over my shoulder. And he was like, well, that's just the last thing you want to do. <laughs> um, because, because if you're running away from it, It thinks you are prey, and you are not as fast as a deer or any of the other prey that it typically stalks. So then he starts saying, you know, if this happens again, you kind of need to, like, make lots of noise. You need to, you know, shout, raise your arms above your head. 
Um, you need to do all of these things. You need to be very aggressive. Um, and then he said, um, the last thing he said before we got off the phone was, um, if it attacks you, <laughs> he said, you need to fight as though your life depends on it. Because it probably does. I'm like, awesome. Um, so when, I was, when I've been running on that path lately now or ever since then, um, kind of as I start down that little hill, usually I, I kind of make some noise, kind of yell, um, that kind of thing. Um, but I still do that. Uh, I'm just, I'm sharing that um, because one of the things that, that we need to recognize as Christians in, in the cultural moment in which we currently live, we are in the fight of our lives when it comes to the text that we're going to read today. We're in the fight of our lives and we need to, we need to act like it. We need to act like this really matters. So, so this is Mark 10, uh, verses, verses 1 to 12. And you can follow along in your Bible. If you have one of these blue books or green, you can follow there or on version. Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Later, when he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. So for the past 2,000 years, these verses have been, have been used to inflict pain and hardship in unimaginable ways on people in so many different times, in so many different ways. Their use of these verses, the use of these verses, has brought unnecessary guilt and shame upon people. One of the things that we talk about a lot here at Westway Christian Church is context, right? What's going on in and around this story? We need to pay close attention to what happens before this. We need to pay close attention to what's after this. And really our job and our goal is to understand what these verses, um, what these verses say, what these verses mean, and what they mean for us. And as we talk about these verses today, it's crucial to remember two very important things. Uh, number one, the Bible is not written to us, but it is written for us. So when, when Mark penned these words 2,000 years ago, he did not know that we were going to be reading this 2,000 years later. They had, they had an original 
recipient. And it, it wasn't us. But the Bible is for us. That doesn't mean there's nothing for us. So when we read the Bible, we need, to, we need to make sure that we're putting it into context. We need to make sure that we understand what this book is saying, what this text is saying, and what it's not saying. And here's the second thing, and we just started talking about this a few weeks ago. Never read just a verse. It can be very easy for us to read 12 verses like, like jump into Mark, pull these 12 verses out of context, out of the rest of the story and use them to inflict pain and hardship on people to keep people in marriages where they don't need to be. If there's abuse or strong neglect or anything like that, we want to make sure that we're not using the text incorrectly. We don't want to just pull this out. So here's, as I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about this message for three months. As soon as, as soon as I started reading and studying through Mark, like, this is the big one. Of all the things that we've talked about, I think this is, this is the big one. So as I've been thinking about it, um, think about the 60,000 foot view of the Bible, right? The really big picture of the Bible. We get that in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so the people of God may be prepared. Right? So what Paul is telling Timothy is all scripture is God-breathed. Not just some of the scripture, not just the parts that we like about scripture, but the parts that make us uncomfortable, that also is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. That's the big picture. Here's the 30,000-foot view. That's Mark 1.1. We talked about this at the very beginning of this series. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah. Right, so anything we talk about in the book of Mark, we need to remember it's God-breathed, it has a purpose, and it's about Jesus the Messiah. It's telling us something about Jesus the Messiah. Here's the hundred-foot view of this text. And it's the very first verse. Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. Now, this one requires some explanation for us because unless we like unless we're really reading this carefully unless we've spent um spent some time kind of looking at a map in the back of your bible um unless we unless we do some additional reading there are some things that we might miss from this text so so I want to tell you um last week in our staff meeting as we were talking about this text we had some of our mentored ministry students uh from summit here and um, one of them, Jason, reminded us that the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River, is the same area that Herod Antipas had control over. Now, maybe that doesn't mean anything to you. But earlier in Mark chapter 6, this was one of the parts we skipped over. We would have read this in Mark chapter 6. Herod, Herod Antipas, had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John the Baptist as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother, Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. So are you following on that? Herod Antipas has a brother named Philip who has a wife named Herodias. She divorces Philip and marries Herod. 
John had been telling Herod, it is against the law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. So we are in this space where Herod Antipas now reigns, where now Herod Antipas now rules. Remembering all of these things, the Pharisees come and ask Jesus a question. And according to Mark's little editorial comment, we tried to trap them. They weren't asking this question with any integrity. They weren't asking this question because they cared about people. They weren't asking because one of their wives was cheating on them and they wanted to know what to do. They weren't asking because because one of their number was abusing his wife and they were asking what to do. They were just trying to trap Jesus. They were asking Jesus a political question. This is a question of interpretation. They wanted to see what side Jesus was on, right? Because if Jesus comes out and says, it's illegal, it is immoral, it is adultery if you divorce your husband and marry someone else, that puts him in the same camp as John the Baptist. Are you following along with the story here? And what happened to John the Baptist? He was beheaded. The Pharisees already want to kill Jesus. Wouldn't it just be easier if Herod did it for them? We have to take this into account as we are considering this. There are two schools of thought in Jewish law at the time, and I'm going to say these wrong, and um, I'll hear about it tomorrow in the elders' meeting. The Shammai school said that divorce was allowable only in the case of sexual immorality. The Hillel school said divorce was allowable for any number of reasons, including burning a meal. So think about that. I have overcooked so much food in my married life. See, here's what's going on. The the Pharisees are trivializing marriage and divorce. They're reducing it to a political side. So we need to be very careful Very careful, knowing this background, when we just stick our hand into Mark and pull this out, right, and use it. Because because that's not all that's going on here in this story. I love Jesus' response. He says, well, what did Moses say? And we have to remember that Moses represents the law. The Pharisees say, well, he permitted it. He said, a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. So this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And I'm just going to read Deuteronomy 24, 1. Suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. Now, for us in 2022, that sounds pretty offensive. But... The reality is, whether we like it or not, in the time of Deuteronomy and in the time of Mark, women had very few rights. Like this is, this is a different time. And so much of the tension that we feel when we read an Old Testament text or even a New Testament text for that matter, so much of the tension that we feel when we read an ancient text is because we're, we weren't alive then. We don't understand. Years and years and years and years have passed. It's a completely different time. But the question that we have to ask is, based on what Deuteronomy 24.1 says, were the Pharisees right? 
could a man just write out a certificate of divorce and hand it to her and kick her out of the house? No, there had to be a reason. And what I really want you to do is remember that the Pharisees were not asking this question out of concern for anyone. It's not why they were asking it. They wanted to make a point. They had something that they wanted to say. And listen to what Jesus' response is. This, is. this is Mark 10, verse 5. He, Moses, wrote this commandment. That's Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. Only as a concession to your hard hearts. Matthew, in his gospel, in his accounting of this story in 19.9, says this. And, I tell, and Jesus adds this. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. So this is what we need to hear as we're wrestling through this question, right? What about divorce? What do we do with divorce? Divorce is allowed as a concession because of the sinfulness of humanity. That's why divorce is allowed. It's a concession. Someone is sinful. The husband or wife who abuses, who abuses and mistreats their spouse has a hard heart. The wife or the husband who has an emotional relationship with someone other than their spouse, that is a hard heart. If there's an anger problem in your marriage, that is due to hardness of heart. If there's verbal abuse in your marriage, that is due to a hardness of heart. I have been, I've been in ministry since paid ministry, since 2005. And I've, I've been around many other pastors, and this has been my own experience. But I've talked with far too many people. I'm going to just read this because I don't want to say it right. I've talked with far too many people who are ready to divorce their spouse, not because of abuse, adultery, neglect, drug abuse, or other safety concerns. Many of the people that I talk to who are wanting to pursue divorce, it really comes down to their spouse is an average run-of-the-mill sinner. They just don't like their spouse. They don't like what their spouse says. They don't like what their spouse does. And if that were the case, Ann and I have been married for 31 years. We would have been divorced about 82 million times in the last 30 years. Right? We just didn't like something that the other person said or did. We would, we would split. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. Abuse is real and neglect is real and adultery is real. And each and every one of these things absolutely have to be dealt with. These things are legitimate reasons for you to leave and ultimately, maybe even divorce your spouse. See, there are legitimate reasons. We have to acknowledge that, but we also have to remember that it's because of the hardness of our heart. It's not a get out of jail free card. Jesus is saying that divorce is the product of the sinfulness of man. And God gives rules for it so that society can be orderly. 
One of the things that I would encourage you to think about as you're reading through the Old Testament and we see verses like the one that we're talking about today is comparatively speaking, Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 is quite a leap compared to the rest of the culture. See, the rest of the culture says, if I don't like my spouse, I'm just going to divorce her. I'm just going to kick her out. I'm just going to leave her to fend for herself. And what's happening in Deuteronomy is we're seeing that, that there are rules, that there are guidelines. This is meant to protect women. This is meant to protect children. These people are already marginalized in their society. And what God is doing is he's, he's setting down standards and guidelines for people to follow so that they will be cared for. Notice what Jesus does next. He quotes scripture. He doesn't give a political statement. He doesn't quote tradition. He quotes scripture. He says, God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. That's Genesis 1.27. Then he says this, this made male and female from the beginning of creation explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. That's Genesis 2.24. I want you to notice that when these, when these Pharisees come to Jesus and they're asking a question of interpretation, they're asking a question about a political thought, Jesus doesn't respond in kind. He gives them what the Bible says. And we would really do well if rather than giving political responses, rather than giving interpretation, we would just say what the Bible has to say. But then Jesus adds something. He says, since there are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. See, there's the guard against human selfishness, right? How many of you who are married have been selfish in your marriage? Right? Well, keep your hands up. Come on. We all know. How many of you who are married have ever wondered, even for a moment, is this worth it? Come on, it should be the same hands. Like, come on. Like, we need a protection against our selfishness then, don't we? We need, we need some kind of guardrail that, that when we're lying awake in the middle of the night and, and you've been married, I don't, whether it's like some of, you, some of you guys in this room, I know have been married for less than two years. And I know you've had this thought in those first two years, right? Like whether you've been married for, for two weeks, two years, or two decades, like you've had a moment where you've woken up in the middle of the night and you're like, oh, it would just be easier if I were not married to this person. We need a protection against that selfishness. We need to remember that Jesus has something else for us, that God has something else for us. And this is really important. Jesus did not say, let no one split apart what man has joined together. Jesus did not say, let no one split apart what the state has put together. Jesus does say, let no one split apart what God has joined together. See, Jesus' entire message in, in responding to them, they come to him, they're going to play this political game. And instead, what Jesus does is he actually does some biblical teaching on them. 
He's giving the authority of marriage back to God. Because what the Pharisees want to do is they want to, they want to catch Jesus in a trap. They want to have him pick sides. They want to have Jesus pick which authority, which human authority he is going to follow. But Jesus is giving marriage back to God. And we don't get to shape it. We don't get to change it. We don't get to define it. We don't get to trivialize marriage. And we also don't get to elevate marriage to more than what it is. And lastly, in this text, notice what Jesus does next. I find it so fascinating that Jesus goes and retreats with his disciples. Remember, we talked about this last week. Jesus is going to spend the rest of his life just trying to be with his 12 disciples. Be with the people that are, that are the most important to him in fulfilling his mission on earth. Jesus retreats to, his, um, to the privacy with his disciples and they ask him more about it, right? Because this is a confusing text. Confusing text? The disciples are confused. And Jesus, this is so, fa- again, this is like in privacy and I love this part. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. So in the context of this, because we read this and all of a sudden, like the harshness meter, like we can kind of deal with what Jesus is saying up until this point, right? Kind of makes sense. The harshness meter goes to about a thousand. But remember the context. Contextually, the man who divorces his wife because she burned his food is an adulterer. That's what Jesus is saying. And in this time and space, in this history, women were not divorcing their husbands. It wasn't allowed. It was against the law. It wasn't culturally appropriate. This is one of those differences. So when Jesus says this, he must be talking about something else. He is. He's condemning Herodias for divorcing her husband, Philip, for the sole reason of marrying Herod Antipas. See, Jesus is responding in context. We have to remember the 60,000 foot view. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. It's designed to help the people of God be prepared. And that's us. And this is like, this is, this is the good part about the Bible, right? It's not written to us, but it is written for us, which means there's something for us. And this is, this is the 10-foot view. So we've had the 60,000-foot view, the 30,000-foot view, the 100-foot view, and now let's talk about the 10-foot view. I was reminded this week in a number of different ways that Jesus' primary response to sin, chaos, and the work of Satan was compassion. That was his primary response. We read this a few weeks ago. Jesus saw the crowds. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them. So I'm going to talk specifically today for the rest of our time to two different groups of people. Um, The first group is everyone. The first group is to all of us. 
And the second group is, is those who are followers of Jesus. And it's my goal to talk with each group today with the utmost of empathy, sympathy, and compassion. So, so I want you, everyone, to know something. I want you to know that you have been lied to in the area of your sexual ethic. Every single one of us in this room has been lied to in your sexual ethic. You have been told what happens in the bedroom stays in the bedroom. You have been told what happens between two or more consenting adults is their business. You have been told you were born this way. You have been told that pornography isn't that big of a deal. We, as a culture, have minimized the sin of cohabitation and have maximized the sin of homosexuality. See, we've each been lied to, and no one is going to actually tell you any of this. No one's going to. And maybe there's somebody that wants to leave. Maybe there's someone that turns off, wants to turn off the stream. I want you to stick with me because, like, this is a grown-up conversation. These are the kind of things that churches need to be talking about with people. There was an interesting opinion piece in USA Today a few weeks ago. It was written by, by a man named Elliot Scherfer. And the article was called, Who Are You Calling Unnatural? Even if Florida teachers don't say gay, science sure does. In this article, Elliot talks about growing up as a homosexual male in Florida and specifically how he heard growing up that his homosexuality was wrong because it was not found in nature. Does that make sense? Like the argument that this person grew up hearing was, because we don't see homosexuality in nature, homosexuality among humans is wrong. Elliot goes on to write then that there are some animals that in fact do engage in same-sex behavior. Bottlenose dolphins, penguins, and bonobos, which is a type of chimpanzee. And here's the point of the article. This actually says this in the article. Because these and other animals actually engage in this behavior, humans are free to. In fact, they should. According to an article that I did not write, sex acts are for creating stronger social alliances and minimizing conflict and tension within their groups. So as I've been processing this article for the past few weeks, um, I have a question. How does it feel to be compared to an animal that engages in a sexual behavior? As a human being, how does it feel to be compared to an animal? Is this what we reduce sexual behavior to? It's fascinating to me that in an attempt to defend a behavior, we have to dehumanize someone to do it. This is amazing to me 
See, this is part of the lie. We're, we're just animals. We're just doing what comes naturally. This is a lie. And again, I'm not the one comparing you to a bonobo. This is, this is a person who, who believes this. Who believes that because animals do it, humans should too. And you should know that there's a better story. It's Genesis 1.26. God created human beings in his own image. Bonobos and penguins and bottlenose dolphins were not made in God's image. Human beings are made in God's image. And here's the thing. We don't take our behavioral cues from bonobos. Like, bonobos are cannibalistic. I started looking up some things about bonobos and immediately regretted it. Right? We don't take our cues from animals. We don't take our cues from the created order We take our cues from the creator of that order. And we all need to see past and through the lies and then the deception of our age. We need to see truth. What if I came in here today and I said, you know what? I don't, I read this and I just, I don't like the way Jesus talks about gender and norms and all of these kinds of things. So, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to change it. Like what kind of kind of what kind of person would that make me? What kind of pastor would that make me? Matt Chandler says this the Bible has a moral vision for the Christian life that it doesn't apologize for. See, and we shouldn't apologize either. God's not trying to take anything from us. The sexual ethic of the Bible is not out of date. And all we have to do is look into our current age and see the carnage that it causes. We see the carnage caused when families divorce over non-biblical reasons. We see the carnage caused when people don't follow the created order. We see that. We know these things are true. Bible's plan is clear. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. See, anything and everything else outside of that is a lie. That's what we've been told. We've been, we've been inculcated into thinking that, that the Bible is, is not true. And it's so fascinating to me reading all the things that, that, I, that I've read about this topic. They sound eerily similar to, does the Bible really say which sounds eerily similar to, did God really say? So we have been lied to. We've been lied to. We need to recognize it and repent. We need to give up our own way. We need to take up our cross and we need to follow Jesus. So now for my Christian brothers and sisters, that was actually easier than what I'm going to say to you. Christians, you should know that we're in the fight of our lives today. And I think far too many of us are not taking it very seriously. 
A few weeks ago when transgender swimmer Leah Thomas defeated Emma Wyant, Erica Sullivan, and Brooke Ford, much of what I saw threw me for a bit of a loop because what I saw were memes and Babylon Bee articles and a whole host of other things that, at least from my perspective, didn't seem to take this very seriously. Now, if you know me over the last five years, you've learned that I love satire and I love sarcasm. And here's the thing. Neither one of those things point people to Jesus. See, when we enter into these spaces and our response is a joke, that's not fighting the battle very seriously. Well, people who are struggling with who they are as image bearers of God need to hear clearly and unashamedly from us as Christians is that they are made in God's image. They need compassion. They need to not just hear Genesis 126 and 127 and 224. They need to see it demonstrated. It's not just pregnant moms who need to hear that their children are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's children and teens and adults who need to hear it. It's people who don't feel like the person that God made them to be, they need to hear it. What we need to do is we need to enter into their spaces and remind them of who God says they are. This is the calling of the Christian. This is our job. This is our role. This is our responsibility. Humans were set apart from the rest of creation to represent God on earth, to image him in creation. I talked about this at Summit on Wednesday. Paul would write this in 2 Corinthians 5.20. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for God when we plead, come back to God. Other translations say, be reconciled to God. This is our message, be reconciled to God. And there's this implication when someone is being reconciled to God, there's this implication that they were once in a relationship with God and they've left that relationship. Something has fractured that relationship. Here's the definition of reconciliation. It's the establishment or restoration of loving relationship after estrangement. See, here's the thing. Our sin has estranged us from God. All of our sin has estranged us from God. The lies that we've heard, the lies that we've fallen for, the lies that we believe have estranged us from God. And it is our job as Christians to call people back to God, to reconcile them to God. We need to do more than just have compassion. We need to demonstrate it because compassion is action. Last week, I was sharing some of the verses that I knew we were going to talk about today on my Facebook page, and I had an old friend reach out to me. She is a transgender child. And she gave me permission to share this with you. Parents of trans kids are suffering immensely right now, being villainized and misunderstood in the public sphere. People on one side say our kids are evil, part of some kind of liberal plot, or they don't know who they are. People on the other side say we have to let them take hormones, even if they are very young, allowing them 
to make permanent changes to their body immediately and agree with every aspect of a liberal agenda or we are transphobic. Do you hear the space that my friend is living in right now? Suicide rates are four times higher for trans kids. Our first goal is to keep our kids alive. What I see is that the political sphere loves having our kids to argue about. Making them part of a culture war only serves people who aren't living the day-to-day -day reality of the kid or the parent. This is infuriating. Do you remember what the Pharisees asked Jesus? Jesus, what side are you on? Are you conservative when it comes to divorce? Are you liberal when it comes to divorce? The honest discussion of how to alleviate their pain and the real research into what is happening to them is hampered equally by fear and hate on the right and the left. When I started to look for some real help, I found either people who thought we could pray the gay away or that I should immediately give my kids hormones or whatever they wanted in order to save them. Both of these are, in the case with my kid, losing strategies. What's going on with my child is real biological and complex. They're both autistic and trans. This is the case with about 75% of transgender females. If you want to Google something, Google transgender females and autism. The overlap of autism and transgender identity is huge and unexplained. Every decent therapist I work with and every advisor is seeing the same thing and is documented in peer-reviewed medical literature. They know why it's happening, but not why. They know it is happening, but not why it's happening. Some studies at Harvard show that transgender individuals actually have less activity in the area of the brain that recognizes its own body. Unless and until we can start having honest conversations about this, nothing will get better or change. I don't talk about it publicly because I will generally get an equal amount of hate on all sides. Do you hear this from a parent who's hearing about it from everyone? This is, my friend does not have a liberal agenda for us. My friend is telling us the reality of what it's like to have a child who needs to hear that they are made in God's image. I, walk, I work with my child, walking a spiritual path with them as they struggle to reconcile with their identity and the mixed signals sent by their body. Throughout the last few years, they've changed anything and everything that was superficial. Name, clothing, hair, but we haven't done anything permanent. The drive to make their outside match their inside is hard to deny. This community longs for love and belonging just like everyone else. Anyway, the main things that I think are important and that apply regardless of how one interprets scripture is that there is strong evidence that transgender orientation is related to autism and that there are brain differences in transgender people and how they relate to their bodies. I would hope that someone out there is really looking for the answer and that society will not simply continue to use our kids as political pawns. So we have to ask the question, what would it look like for a group of kind, caring, and compassionate people to come alongside people like my friend and their child and point them to Jesus Christ? To not post memes and not post gifts and not post Babylon B articles and not post all of this nonsense, but actually love people. What would it look like for us to not be mad at people for being deceived, but to love them?
What would it look like for us to remember and to realize that we were once those same deceived and lied to people? That's what Ephesians 2 says to us. See, we were once dead in our sins. We were once dead in our transgressions. We used to live in sin, but only because of the richness of God's love and mercy, we have salvation. What would it look like for us to point people to God? By the end of Mark 10, Jesus will have told the disciples three times that the role of the Messiah would be accomplished through betrayal, rejection, suffering, sacrifice, death, and resurrection. See, Jesus fought for us like his life depended on it. And he was victorious because of his love. And he has invited us. He has invited followers of Christ. He's invited everyone. He's especially invited followers of Christ to take up your same pattern. His same pattern. Give up your life. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Jesus won through pain, suffering, and shame. And he calls us to do the exact same thing. He calls us to be in the lives of people who are different than us. To love them and to serve them. Not to judge and condemn them. To call them to Christ? Absolutely. To desire for them to see repentance? Yes. And to love and to recognize that we have all been told this great cultural lie. It's destroying us. Ultimately, this is about finding our identity in Christ. We don't find our approval or affirmation by what other people tell us. We find it from God. We find it from Jesus who tells us that we are made in his image. Male and female. We have a purpose to be an ambassador for Christ. That is a far better story than anything the lies our culture tells us. And I want to call you to that today. I want to call you to embrace that story. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for your word that speaks truth to us. I pray that we would see ourselves as made in your image. We would see the, the fight that we have is, is real. We would see that we must not shrink from it. We must be truth tellers. We must call out lies. When we hear someone comparing the behavior of other humans to that of animals, we need to call that out. There's a better story and it's yours. God, for those of us who have not taken this very seriously, I pray that we would, we would remember our mission. We would remember our purpose. That we would not use people, we would not use the struggles of people as pawns in our little political games. But we would see people as made in the image of your son, Jesus. 
And it's in his name we pray. Amen.